Welcome to The Exponential Founder. This episode is the little-known secret of maximizing your investment return in a tech company. The little-known secret in maximizing your investment in a tech company. Am I talking about how you do due diligence or how you spot great opportunities or how you tweak business models? Or how you find great investment opportunities? No, none of these things. Whilst all of these things can make some difference, they don't make a fundamental difference to the extent that what I'm just about to speak to you about does. And you may be thinking, as you hear me talk about what I'm about to talk about, why have I not heard this before? And really, it's the same as the reason that you never saw people using bicycles on boats before until about three years ago when Team New Zealand did it and used pedal power to operate the auxiliary pulley system which meant they could turn faster, tack faster than people who were grinding with their arms. And that was oversight. It wasn't traditionally done. Traditionally on boats for 40, dec 40 years people ground the pulley system with their arms. In hindsight it appears ludicrous that we would use our biceps and triceps rather than our quadriceps and hamstrings, a much more powerful muscle group to operate the pulley system, which means that we tack faster. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Oversight is part of the human condition. So this is an expensive oversight, which has stung a lot of investors. It's stung a huge amount of angel investment groups uh, around the country and in fact around the world. And it all comes from one thing about human beings. And that is the very top human beings, the A players, are at choice. And that's true whether you're talking about top employees or top investee companies and the people who lead them. Now, I use employment as an analogy because it unpacks so much and so many insights into how angel investors and angel investment groups and even venture capitalists must behave if you are to attract and retain and grow the best. The principle is very simple. If you are a company and you're hiring and you don't have great values and a great culture and great communication and you don't respect the human capital of the people coming into your organization, then you will attract B and C players. And they will come into your company, and your company will continue to have a reputation of being a B-rated and or C-rated company filled with B and C-rated people with a B or C-rated culture. However, if you have great culture and great values, then you will attract the employees who are the best, the ones who are at choice, the ones who you are not choosing, but who are choosing you. Because people want them, because they are the best, they have the best skills, the best aptitude, the best talents, the best mindset, the best attitude, the best experience, the best growth mindset, the best propensity to succeed in the future, the best relevance and suitability to the position. These are the ones that every company wants, but not every company gets. And these people will choose the ones that have what? The best culture 
and the most aligned values. Guess what? It's exactly the same with the founders of tech companies. They, the best ones, are at choice. Are at choice about who gets to invest in them. Just like the top employees are at choice about who they work for. And this may come as a devastating blow to the egos and pride of different investors or investment groups, just like it comes as a devastating blow to the pride of companies to know that people could be choosing you rather than you choosing them. And yet the ones who place their desire for growth ahead of their egos are the ones that succeed. No different in the investment community. Now, just like the revelation that our leg muscles are a stronger muscle group than our arm muscles and therefore pedal power works better than grinding power to pull the cables that operate the fast tacking mechanism of America's cup yachts, obvious in hindsight. Similarly, obvious in hindsight when we look at it, that human behavior would be the same in investment companies or investors looking to attract investee companies as it would top employers looking to attract the top employees. Same rules apply. Massive oversight that investors and angel investment groups have never adequately considered the consequence of their behavior. So here's what's... Now, by the way, this is not theory. This is not speculation. This is not me looking and saying, hey, this should hold true across these two different things. Um, I've been working in this sector with tech entrepreneurs for around about 12 years now, have personally coached over 50 tech entrepreneurs, many of whom have gone through investment rounds, and many of whom have told me that they are actively bypassing the entire angel investment community of this country because they don't believe that the people are value aligned, that there's a good cultural fit, and that the people there will be able to add value, or they're not aware of where their value and ability to add value tapers off dangerously, which means there's a high probability they will ask them to take on bad advice. That's why in droves, a number of the people that I coach are bypassing a huge number of investors. That's significant, and that's a concern, and it should be a big concern to those investment groups. But it also means when they're talking to individual investors, they have red flags already worked out. They have certain things that if in prospective investees do things, that rules them out as a prospective investor into their company. Because they understand that an investment decision is like a marriage. Once it's done, it's hard to undo. You're part of the DNA of the company. And together now in partnership, you have either made it more likely or less likely that the company will succeed. So the very top CEOs of tech companies, the ones who are most at choice, are choosing you, are looking for red flags, are looking at your behaviors, are looking at whether you play nice, are looking at whether you share their values, are looking at if it's an investment group, what the culture is, are looking to see whether you have high self-awareness, are looking to see whether it is your disposition 
to advise first and ask questions later, or the other way around, are looking to see whether you assume their ignorance or assume their experience. Are looking to see whether they believe that they have experience in an unrelated sector that they think that that is automatically relevant to your tech sector, or whether they have awareness about whether there are nuances and differences and one does not apply to the other. These are the things that the CEOs of the top investee companies are looking for in you. They are qualifying you. Again, this is not speculation. This is not theory. This comes from working with over 50 CEOs of tech companies who have been successful in raising investment, who have bypassed the people they did not seek it from, who sought people who were value aligned and could add value. I want for you to be one of those people. I want you to be one of those representatives of an investment company because that's going to be good for the entire investment ecosystem. So how do you do that? And what are the red flags that these people are looking for? Let me give you some actual examples of anecdotes of people who did not do investment deals and some of the reasons they didn't. Reason number one is the overall tone of disrespect. Now, people don't go out trying to be disrespectful, but the tone with which you communicate to the chief executive of a tech company, even if they don't have a lot of experience, even if they're 20 years younger than you, even if they haven't made nearly as much money as you have, all those things are irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is, does this person have the ability to be on a fast growth plane with a company that has high growth potential? That's all that matters. The team and the business opportunity. Two things, if you boil it down, is all that matters. And guess what? The business opportunity and the product is created by the team, so if you really boil it down, it's all about the team. Can they grow extremely fast? So here are some actual things that different investors have said that I've had recalled to me that have been red flags to the CEOs of companies who missed the opportunity to get investment. Red flag number one, the question from an investor, are you prepared to step down and take a chief technology officer role and let someone else be CEO of the company? Red flag number one. What's it really saying? What it's saying is, I do not understand the first law of investing into tech companies, which is that birth parents, 99 times out of 100, make better parents than foster parents. And I see a current gap in experience as an indictment of your ability rather than a starting point for your growth. So rather than coach you into the values or find someone who can, more to the point, I look to replace. It's a disastrous pattern. It doesn't work for the most part. And it's not something that sophisticated investors do. Which is why if you look at the top tech companies in the world, the top 10, nine, of those top, nine out of those top 10 were run by the founders themselves during their high growth years. Nine out of the top 10. So when you make a comment like that, you're actually advertising your ignorance of what creates high performing 
tech companies and you're showing that you would rather base your decisions based on mythology and hearsay and tradition than what actually works and data and pattern matching. So that's red flag number one. Red flag number two is disrespectful tone. So you might say something like, well, I can't believe that you didn't know that, or I'm disappointed that you didn't have the answer for that ready, or I would have expected someone in your position to have the answer to that. Now, let me make a nuance very clear. Let's say you asked for some financial information and the CEO didn't know. You may say, look, in all seriousness, as a CEO of the company, it is my expectation you should have that information at your fingertips and on your lips. That's okay. But to come and say, you're the CEO, you don't know that information, that's a red flag. You see the difference? So it's less what you say and more the manner in which you deliver what you say, which signifies whether you are a red flag investor versus someone who asks some tough questions but can be worked with. And again, you may think that you're asking tough questions in a respectful tone, but what you think is irrelevant because you might not have the self-awareness to know how your communication is landing with another person. What they think of you is all important. So self-awareness is a vitally important quality when it comes to being a successful investor. Self-awareness around, tech investor anyway, self-awareness about how your communication is landing with others. You may say something such as, well, you've done really well in creating this client server version of your product. You've also got the cloud product. You need to get all of your customers from the client server version into the cloud version of your product in the next six months. And coming in and giving theoretical advice, which works in theory without first taking time to understand and rather say something such as, hey, we see you've got these two versions of your product. It looks as though that's been the case for last year. And it seems as though you don't expect to fully migrate people within a year. We know there's a big cost of maintaining two products at once. Tell us why that is. See the difference? One is from the spirit of advise first, ask questions second, if at all. Second is to offer insight and to give the founder the opportunity to explain their thinking. Coming from the assumption, if they're in this industry, they probably know something about it. They might have some blind spots, but let them come out of question time rather than assumption time. And you know what? If that question had been asked, it would have led to potentially a very different outcome about whether that company chose to be invested in by the people doing due diligence or not. Because then the person could have said, yes, I totally agree. And that has hit us. Thank you for your awareness. Here's the reason why it's been imperative that we do not migrate our customers in the next nine months. Because we have this customer, this customer, this customer. And if we were to do this, here would be the cost. We thought around these possibilities. Here's what would happen. Please tell us if you think we're missing something. We totally agree. And when we weigh them up, here's why this has been the right path in our situation. Now you're in a dialogue. Now you can start to unpack 
people's reasons for action. Here's another example. Well, this is a little bit hard for me to say, but we've had a look at this person here and he's in this role of the company. We don't think he's cut out for leadership. It's part of our investment. We need him to vacate his position and to get someone else. This was not even talking about the CEO. This was another leader within the company. Now, it's okay to say, hey, look, let us be candid about what we see as the obstacles to us investing. Number one is actually, and this is a bit sensitive, it's one of the members of your team. We see some gaps between where he or she is as a leader and where he or she needs to be in order for us to feel comfortable investing in your company. And here's why. And I don't know how we resolve this. Perhaps this person's open to coaching and we can close it that way. But frankly, we, don't need, we can't even assume that person wants to be coached. Maybe that person has just gone to that leadership position because they feel they should, whereas in fact, they would love to be in a technical position. We don't know. But you know this person. Tell me what you think. Again, you see, there's less assumption and more asking, more collaboration. Had that question been asked, well, that founder that could have said yes to that investment would have gone back, would have had a conversation, and would have said, you know what? I've actually had a chat to that person, and I think your insight is actually bang on. This is one of the cases where they would love nothing better than to have a purely technical position, and they don't want to play a leadership role. So... Thank you for illuminating that to me because now I've got insight on what we need to do moving forward. And the only reason that he had that position, you're absolutely right, was that he believed that he had to in order to try to add value. It does happen sometimes. But again, ask, not assume. That can be the difference between you getting a great investment and you losing it because you're basically broadcasting The fact that you would rather assume than ask. The fact that you are assuming the other person doesn't know what they're doing. The fact that you can glean more and have more insight in a few hours of due diligence than this person can in several years running their own company. Don't make those assumptions. It's not to say you can't have insight and see things from the outside. Of course you can, that other people may not have seen. Check stuff out. Ask. Don't assume. These behaviors will reward you because you will get the investments you're currently losing because you're just coming across all wrong. You're not playing nice. And you're being perceived as being aggressive and unsupportive and not contributing to the culture or the values that this A-playing company has spent years or months cultivating. Another example of a, of a, an, a deal losing behavior. Well, you're in the sector over here. You should go into the sector over here. Great. Fantastic. For example, hey, you're in property, residential property. You should go into commercial property. Might look theoretically like a great idea, but you know there's big differences between one and the other. Huge differences. And again, it's coming from the spirit of ask, of rather assume, not asking. A better approach would be to go, hey, look, we're curious to know. You've, you're running software over there for this user group. There's this user community over here. Uh, I don't know a lot about the sector. You, I'm, I assume, know a huge amount about it. Tell us about some of the reasons about why you think this may or may not be a good idea at some point, either now or in the future. And then just listen. Such a better approach. Because again, then you're showing that 
This is the behaviors they can expect from you when you have a seat at the board table or when you're a supporter of the company, which is to ask questions which can show where there may be gaps in understanding or illuminate insights rather than come in with a heavy-handed approach, suggest a strategy without any checking in about whether it's appropriate or not, simply because it occurred to you. Here's another behavior which is toxic to your chances of getting the best investments. Uh, this is the behavior, and this is the, the top one of all. Lack of knowledge of how tech companies grow is not a problem. If you're an investor and you don't come from a tech background, maybe you have made money in the property sector or in farming or in accountancy or in corporations or family wealth or whatever it is, fill in the blank, doesn't matter. That's not the problem. It becomes a problem if that is coupled with a lack of self-awareness about where your expertise tapers off, not gently, but like a cliff. Because there are some things which are very different to running tech companies versus running non-tech companies. And I can summarize them by saying that in tech, unlike commodities, and I use wine as the example, in wine, you might have a great message about why your wine or why your Shiraz, but you don't have to say why wine or explain what wine is to people. In tech, you do. You're showing people products where they don't understand the instance of the product or the product itself. In wine, they know what the wine product is. They just don't understand your particular instance of the product. So the messaging and the sales piece is harder in tech. Second thing which is true. With wine, the components to build wine are already there. They're called grapes. They grow on vines. You do some stuff to them. You put them through a process. You will get wine. With tech, it's not so. You know, you've got to create everything from scratch. There are no grapes you can just take and press and turn into some wine. Everything must be created from scratch. So the process of creating the raw materials don't exist. The raw materials and the refined materials of product must be created. The raw materials, your MVP, your minimum viable product, and then that's refined into something that you can sell to other people. So again, it's a two-step process. So there's more complexity. And because of those two complexities, both at the sales and marketing side and at the product creation side, that leads to the third complexity, which is the need for investment for longer periods of time because you're building not a two-story building, but a multi-story skyscraper. And that requires, in most cases, way deeper foundations. In other words, you're going to be going down to the earth, sinking money in before you see profit coming out. It takes longer to get profitable. The measures of success are different. The amount of sunk capital required is different. Just like you need more sunk concrete when you're building a skyscraper than a single-story house or a two-story house. And so the complexities are very different. Now, if you understand that, there are differences. That's good. But if you assume that because you have status, position, age, experience, and have made money in another sector which is not tech, that it carries across to tech, that is a very toxic combination. Because bad advice, even well-intentioned bad advice, is one of the top five reasons that tech companies fail. 
and most bad advice, no one goes out of their way trying to get, hey, I want to give you some really bad advice today to see if I can take you out. No one does that. Everyone thinks, every advisor thinks they're giving great advice, right? Then why is bad advice one of the top sources of business failure? Because everyone who thinks they're giving great advice is not giving great advice. Because self-awareness is missing. The self-awareness to know that their advice was the right advice for the wrong person, in the wrong context, at the wrong time, delivered in the wrong way, with the wrong consequences. Self-awareness is key. Having ignorance of a sector is not a problem, but ignorance of a sector combined with ignorance that you have ignorance of the sector, that is the problem. Self-awareness about your ignorance is okay. So if you're part of an investment group, what it means is that whoever's interfacing with your prospective investee companies has to have high self-awareness. They have to play nice. They have to be clear on their values. They have to be most likely to be value aligned with the prospective investee companies. They need to be in the habit of collaborating, of asking first, not assuming. Of listening before they advise, not advising before they listen. And if these things are true, then chances are you're going to find that you start pulling in a lot of these A companies that currently you're missing. Now, what's the impact of that? You can still be part of, you still be an investor or still be part of an investment group that pulls in B and C deals and still earn money. The liquidity invests might take 15 years rather than five to seven. The returns might be six times on those rather than 60 times or 100 times. And the amount of intervention that you need or you feel you need might be a lot higher. And the amount of failures is going to be probably four times as much, particularly if you've got people who lack self-awareness who are actively involved post-investment in giving what they think is good advice, but it's actually way off track. The wrong advice at the wrong time delivered in the wrong way to the wrong people. These things matter. Your best chances of maximizing return on investment as an investor in tech companies is having great values. If you're part of an investment team, having a great culture, having great self-awareness as individuals and as a team about your rules of engagement with your A players. And if you can do these things, you'll find that you are one of the people who the investee CEOs who are at choice will come to and say, hey, we've heard great things about you. We've heard that you have some great values. We've heard that you not only have great intentions, but you have the ability to deliver upon them. And we've heard some good experiences of other people who have had investor representatives sitting on the board about the value they've added, the great questions they've asked, the blind spots they've helped illuminated, and basically how you've set a really safe environment where we could freely brainstorm ideas, uh, be honest about setbacks and mistakes that created the atmosphere where we were more likely to succeed than had we created an atmosphere like most boardrooms, which is an adversarial one. And yes, an adversarial, in other words, not safe, boardroom culture, that'll take companies out. So remember, Smart CEOs know that. And so they're looking for the red flags to say to themselves, 
is this person going to play nice if they've got a seat around the boardroom? And even if they're not going to be on our board, are they going to be a supportive player from the sidelines? Or are they going to be heckling every time we fumble a pass? And that ain't helpful. Play nice. Have great values. And you will pull in the best opportunities. Self-awareness is part of your EQ. Humility should be one of your qualities. Believing that because you've had status, wealth, more years or more experience, that that gives you the ability to give advice outside your domain is foolish and will result in you losing opportunities. And if you get the opportunities, something worse will happen. You will crush the size of return you could get and sometimes crush the company itself through giving bad advice to good people. I'm not saying don't ask tough questions, but there is a way to ask these tough questions. Let me give you an example. I'm on both sides of the table. I invest in companies. I've been a tech entrepreneur and I've been a coach to tech entrepreneurs. I've sat on boards. I've done all of the above. So I look at this from the outside as, as not investor versus investee. I want to make things better for everyone so we have better deal flow and better partnerships everywhere. And when I've found myself in due diligence, there have been times when I've had to ask tough questions. Of course you should do this. But don't confuse tough questions with a disrespectful tone. It's a respectful tone with tough questions. And the emphasis is on questions, not statements as well. I might say something such as, hey, John, I have a couple of concerns. Cards on the table. My number one concern right now is a lot of your sales strategy seems to rely on your entry into the subcontinent. Correct? Yeah. And you've said that you're going to do this through this particular partnership with this channel partner who's going to help you in. Right? Well, I happen to know something about doing business in India, and a lot of it relies on who the perceived uh, status of the people who are your introducers are. And I don't frankly see that with the entry strategy you have, and the meetings that you want to create, that these people who are your channel partners have the ability to get you the meetings that you seek. Walk me through that, please. That might be how you enter into that conversation. And then you shut up and listen. You put your cards on the table, you state your reservations, you shut up and listen. What else might you say? You might say, well, there's another challenge I have. There's part of your business model, which I don't agree with. So I want to walk through this with you. You're earning money from hardware and software. But as I see it, hardware in the sector you're in is a race to the bottom. It's going to get commoditized. Someone's going to come out and create what you're creating cheaper. So I think it's the wrong strategy to expect to be getting high levels of profit from this hardware. I would be more comfortable with your business model if you expected to get no profit from your hardware and show me a business model which is only deriving money from the software that you're creating on the top of it. What are your thoughts on that? Again, I'm open that I could be completely wrong. I'm showing that it's a perspective. I'm showing that it's a current barrier to my understanding. 
But I'm not assuming that that person hasn't thought through it. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. Don't know. I am unattached. I am not attached to that person having to agree or disagree with me. I am simply interested in a neutral way and curious to know how this person responds to something which is a current barrier in my mind. Now that barrier can be resolved because they say, hey, look, I hadn't thought about it this way, but now that you bring it up like that, I think you're right. Uh, can we recalibrate this model for a software-only profit model? If the person says that in response, then that's a good sign. Not because they've made some horrible oversight that makes me nervous, but because they've demonstrated the ability to listen to feedback. They might also say, well, look, we thought about things, and I can totally see where you get this. Here's the reason we think, in our case, why we can still have a reasonable expectation to earn money on hardware. And if they come up with a great answer, fantastic. Again, I'm not interested in what, whether they agree with me or not. What I'm interested is in the quality of their response. Do they either indicate great self-awareness and the ability to take on advice, or the ability to listen and reflect what I've said, and provide a real answer as opposed to a defensive justification, which shows they have no propensity to take on advice or listen to what I've just said. That is the right spirit of engagement. So each party is testing out the other one. So what are the qualities with which you do it? Unattachment to whether someone agrees with you or not. Tabling things, asking tough questions, yes, but in the spirit of being offered neutrally, not antagonistically, and being curious to know they're taking it and actively inviting their response. These are the behaviors that will lead to some great discussions. And by the way, don't be afraid to actually reflect where you think pe where people have done really well. Say, hey, we actually think you've done a great job over this area. We are super impressed by this. We, we think it's great that you have done this. You've engaged with all these different banks and you've formed relationships not just at a fledging level, but at a high level. We think that's awesome because we know that's a hard thing to do. You know, a lot of investors uh, don't want to do that stuff because they think that it's going to be used against them as leverage some way. What nonsense. No. If you've seen something that's worth shining the light on, which is positive, reflect it back. Because again, um, start as you mean to go on. And it's important that you reflect back to people what they're doing well, because that allows two things. It builds confidence, but it also builds the probability that they will continue through positive reinforcement into more of the behaviors which you've shone the light on. Start as you mean to go on. It also shows that communicating with you is not going to be about pun under some acid test the whole time, that you can be fun, that you can be fair. And this is important if you're going to want to have an ongoing relationship with the top players. So there we have it. Some unexpected secrets about how to make sure that you get to invest in the A companies, not just the B and Cs. Comes out of history, not theory. But funnily enough, it follows exactly the same trends that are true in the employer-employee relationship.